The agenda of the conference was to consider detachment not as the mere absence of connections, and therefore as an essentially negative quality, but as a multifarious range of definite social states requiring ethnographic description and analysis. The premise of the conference was that once you reject the idea of the individual as naturally given and ontologically prior to social processes, which anthropologists on the whole have fairly comprehensively done now, then it ought to be possible also to relinquish the negative and suspicious stance towards detachment, which they've often also adopted. It's been an all-too-common reflex in much of the social sciences merely to denounce any claims to anything resembling detachment as necessarily ideological. Ideological both in the sense of being false, since underlying any appearance of detachment must be a hidden reality of entanglements, and ideological also in the sense of being motivated, a disguise whose purpose it must be to conceal those real socio-political engagements and commitments. These reflexes belonged to a version of the anthropological project that allowed itself, too much I think, to be defined by an agonistic relation to metaphysical and methodological individualism. No longer constrained in this way, it becomes possible to see that these reflexes are self-defeating. Because by making all instances of people striving or claiming to achieve detachment seem so predictably the same, they seemed also to confirm the obviousness and singularity of the states at which they aimed. Always the same individual. A less paranoid, more ethnographical stance towards projects for achieving detachment reveals them to be instead intriguingly various. They stand out as requiring explanation. They involve different kinds of institutions and practices, different kinds of work, and the fact that their ends might only ever be approached and never entirely reached becomes itself a matter then of analytical concern. This project then of positive ethnographic engagement with detachment involves also a departure from the tendency to use the terms sociality and relationality as synonyms, as if what it is to be a social condition were a simple quantitative matter of more rather than less interconnectedness, and as if to be more connected to more other people or things were necessarily um, to have a single quality, a single unambiguously good thing, more relationality. We're invited by this prospectus instead to consider that sociality might not be a matter simply of more connections and that disconnections of various kinds might be essential to it. <coughs> the attenuation or the cutting of relations can have positive aspects, positive both in the sense that detachment is not just an absence of connection, there may be various kinds of definite content to detachment, and these different contents need describing. And also positive in the sense that these various forms of detachment might be actively sought as desirable states of affairs. An example would be um, Matei Kandea's observation in his recently published study of human-animal relations in the Kalahari Meerkat Project, a Cambridge-based um, animal behaviour study uh, in the Kalahari Desert of a set of colonies of meerkats. And in his study of this project, of the um, conduct of the scientists there, Kandea uh, observes that for scientists to cultivate a stance of detachment towards the animals they study is not necessarily a gesture of amoral indifference, 
as proponents of engagement in science studies and human-animal relations, and those influenced by Levinas's ethical teachings have tended to assume that it must be. So already the apparently simple injunction to take detachment seriously ethnographically involves several possible claims. The claim that detachment is not merely an absence, the claim that it might have variable forms, and the claim that it might also uh, not necessarily have a negative or neutral ethical quality. Now, in scientific research and in public administration, it's often been claimed that detachment is a moral virtue and that the kinds of detachment called for in these domains approximate disinterest or even indifference as between possible outcomes. So justice is represented as a blindfolded figure, the implication being that she will carry through her impartial process wherever it might lead. So justice, as an example, is represented as a blindfolded figure, the implication of this being that she'll carry through the impartial process wherever it might lead. Detachment and compassion are in obvious tension. In Buddhism, on the other hand, it's always been an axiom that the uh, supreme detachment achieved by the greatest saints is somehow combinable with infinite and universal compassion. Although Buddhists trying to learn meditation have not always found this a straightforward combination to emulate. One crude thought one might have, by which I mean the thought I had when I started to think about this, is that one could distinguish the kinds of detachments that are cultivated in different domains, science, bureaucracy, renouncer religions, in terms of their ethical and affective qualities. But I want, having thought a bit more about it, to suggest actually that this is not so. Instead, I shall try to show that within a single local religious tradition, Shvatamba Jainism in North India, we find practices devoted to different forms of detachment and that their different ethical qualities make sense in terms of their formal characteristics. And that's what I'll try to show. Let me first, though, introduce a different ethnographic example. In the 1990s, reflecting on the genocidal conflicts then taking place in the former Yugoslavia, the anthropologist Fred Bailey compared the situation there with what he had witnessed in fieldwork in Orissa in eastern India in the late 1950s. He was struck by similarities, but also by the strikingly different outcome. Like much of the former Yugoslavia, the village Bailey worked in had been divided between separate and unequal ethnic communities. And at the time of his fieldwork, the relations between these communities were destabilised by the fact that they were being politicised at state and national level. Low-caste panos found themselves receiving powerful political patronage, basically, for the first time. The higher castes found that even use of formerly standard disparaging terms to describe their lower-caste neighbours would be subject to legal sanctions, and that they could no longer exclude them from using the village well, access to temples, and so forth. Bailey observed that this politicisation led to identities being understood on all sides in increasingly moralised and essentialised terms. The conditions for violent conflict were clearly developing. And in other parts of India at the same time, as well as in comparable situations such as Yugoslavia in the 1990s, violent conflict frequently did result from just these kinds of processes. So Bailey's book asks what were the factors that put a break on those developments in that case? What led people to hold back, not to threaten their opponents' really vital interests, and so to stop short 
of mutually destructive violence. Bailey doesn't attribute this fortunate outcome to any very admirable characteristics. It's not that these villagers were able to fall back on generations of good neighbourliness, mutual understanding, or on Levinasian ethical regard for the other. Quite the contrary. His book is called The Civility of Indifference. And the claim is that members of the opposing groups came to their conflict with a background of treating each other in frankly instrumental ways. Not indeed as persons in their, uh, who are ends in themselves at all, but as objects to be manipulated for practical ends. They regarded each other pragmatically, mostly with an eye to their own advantage and the chance of making a bit of a profit when they could. Now, this attitude is plainly, in the classic sense, amoral. Most of us will find it a melancholy thought that anything good could come of it. But Bailey's ethnography is fairly persuasive, and his reasoning seems sound too, when he points out that this attitude of detached indifference precludes the kind of impassioned moralism and demonisation that fuels collective violence. Precisely because these groups were not morally significant to each other, no one's sense of self-worth depended on any specific relations with the other. If they denied each other intrinsic respect, consideration or trust, equally and for just that reason, they did not become possessed of burning hatred or rage either. They just didn't matter to each other enough for that to occur. So detachment, or as Bailey puts it, benign indifference, can be seen as a minor virtue because it enables coexistence even where there are real divergences or conflicts of interest. Not a very heartwarming kind of sociality to be sure, but something nevertheless for which in some circumstances people have good cause to be grateful. The lesson I draw from this is not just that detachment has positive contents, which might be various, and not just that the apparently negative fact of detachment need not mean amoral indifference, which is what I think we learn from uh, Candea's meerkat watchers, but also that even where detachment does indeed involve amoral indifference, this might positively enable a certain kind, albeit a limited kind, of sociality. So different forms of detachment, we may conjecture, have different social correlates and different ethical qualities. I want now to describe three different exercises in the cultivation of detachment from my own ethnographic fieldwork on Jainism in North India, mostly in the city of Jaipur. These examples, I hope, will illustrate what I think might be some general forms detachment can take, prospectively in non-religious as well as religious domains. And I'll end with a slightly formal characterization of what's going on in these three cases with a view to accounting for their different moral qualities, by which I mean the kinds of ethical regard or indifference the work involved in achieving these forms of detachment presupposes or promotes. When the future Lord Buddha left his home and family and embarked on his search for spiritual enlightenment, he joined and travelled for a while with an existing group of ascetics. Traditional Buddhist representations of him towards the end of this period of his life show him as a skeletally thin figure, reduced almost to skin and bone by his efforts to purify his soul through fasting and other austerities. Eventually, he concluded that the means this group were relying upon to pursue enlightenment were simply not working. The middle way the Buddha then worked out and followed lay between the worldly life of householders he had left behind and this other extreme path 
Almost certainly, this Buddhist story is a competitor's partisan, but as we'll see, not wholly fictitious representation of Jainism. Today, Jain renouncers still live and travel from place to place in small groups, living a mendicant life, practicing and teaching their austere and difficult path to salvation. The lay following of, is a small minority in India, mostly fairly prosperous urban and trading communities, together with growing populations overseas. The most conspicuous feature of Jain practice is ahimsa, or non-violence, which lies behind most of the details of the, of the renouncer's monastic code of conduct, and also deeply affects lay religious practice. The pursuit of non-violence is so far-reaching for Jains because their teachings have it that the world is thoroughly suffused with living things, what they nowadays often refer to using the words bacteria or germs in the air, water, fire, and earth, as well as other life forms such as plants, insects, animals, and so forth, all of which have souls that are fundamentally like those of human beings. Indeed, all humans have lived former lives in various of these other kinds of body. In such a pervasively inhabited world, it's simply impossible to live without impinging on other living things, even plants drawing sustenance from the soil, thereby harm other living things. Yet harming other living things is what causes our own souls to be trapped in the cycle of death and rebirth, suffering the karmic effects of these sins in successive births. To escape this and to achieve enlightenment and liberation begins with avoiding gross and obvious forms of physical violence in practices such as vegetarianism, but proceeds through an infinity of steps of progressive self-restraint. The institutions of formal monastic life prescribe lifelong celibate renunciation, and the reverence accorded to renouncers by their lay Jain devotees rests on the spiritual authority in part on the sheer difficulty of this path. So renouncers have no home or possessions of their own, they move from place to place, carrying the very few things that they use, arms, bowls, and so forth, all donated by lay followers. They brush the ground before them as they walk, gently removing insects from their path. They cover their faces while speaking, so as to minimize harm caused to creatures in the air. They learn to sleep lightly and lying still, not moving around unnecessarily while they're asleep, and in general to avoid any unnecessary or careless physical motion. For lay families, many elements of renouncer's discipline are recommended, either permanently but much more commonly for limited periods of time, when people take on voluntary vows to practice a restraint of some kind for a period, or when they fast, which they do either for a connected period or over much longer periods on specified days each week or each month and so forth. Key to all these various technologies of self-transformation is cultivating freedom from attachment. Attachment not only to material possessions, which one needs to learn to do without, but also to all existing personal and social ties and relationships, and to the affections and sentiments that go with those ties. In fact, all likes and dislikes, desires and aversions, hopes and fears, all are obstacles to spiritual progress. It's these mental attachments that drive the unenlightened as they go about their everyday lives to behave in careless and unrestrained ways that routinely lead to heedless slaughter around them. It's, it's, that, it's these attachments that lead one to ignore the fact that you know the world around you and the space around you is, is inhabited, so you do terrible things like waving your arms about. 
So on now to those three specific events and practices for which Jains seek to cultivate this kind of detachment. The first is Paryushan, which is an annual week-long series of ceremonies during the summer rains. And the only point in the year when virtually all lay Jains, even the normally least religious observant, fast and participate in some of the other forms of asceticism which the more committed among them practice regularly throughout the year. Every morning during this period, there are lengthy sermons by renouncers, preceded for most people by a visit to the local temple, and many also participate in collective rites of meditation or confession. Young men might only stay at the sermons for a little while, on most days before rushing off to attend to business and so forth, but most of the older men, and pretty well all of the women, spend much of the morning in religious devotions. Many people take on extra dietary restrictions for the whole period, excluding food such as green or root vegetables, tea or sugar from their diets, or not eating and drinking at all during hours of darkness. And for the last and culminating day of the ceremonies, almost everybody fasts. As is the usual way with Jain fasts, this means not eating anything at all from about an hour before sunset the evening before the day of the fast, continuing all the way through the day itself, until about an hour after sunrise the following day. Children and the elderly and infirm may drink boiled water during the fast, but most people take nothing at all. The day begins with those for whom this is the last of several days fasting, being taken in procession through the streets to a preaching hall, there to receive the blessings of renouncers. In a fairly substantial local Jain community, such as that in Jaipur City, each year several people, especially but not exclusively unmarried or recently married young women, will complete a fast lasting eight continuous days at this point. The morning is spent with the whole local community crammed in the preaching hall, in which neither electric lights nor fans are turned on to prevent any insects from being harmed, listening to the recitation in the original Prakrit of a canonical text describing the life of Mahavira, the Jain equivalent and elder contemporary of the Buddha. The afternoon is spent in the same building, participating in a three-hour or so rite of collective confession, again involving recitation in an ancient language, in which the, an exhaustive list of possible faults, all the sins one might have committed, is recited. Most of this takes the form of the enumeration of the, all the many forms of life one might unintentionally or intentionally have harmed. All this accompanied by an endlessly repeated series of bodily postures to be held for periods at a time, mostly standing, crouching and prostrating. As the day goes on, this jolly festival... Uh, proceeds, uh, and outside, um, uh, the noise from the street grows steadily louder. The reason for this steady um, growth of outside noise is that this Jain ceremony coincides with a very different Hindu festival. And even in neighbourhoods I'm sorry, with quite substantial Jain communities, the Jains are a pretty small minority. This festival is Ganesh Chaturthi. Uh, which is to say a festival for the elephant-headed remover of obstacles, Lord Shiva's son, Ganeshji. The festival as it's currently celebrated is not very old, having its roots in the early 20th century in a sort of neo-traditionalist nationalism in Western India, with a fairly clear pan-Hindu and anti-Muslim subtext. It's spread through most of the country now, and in a large city like Jaipur involves noisy processions of a Ganeshji statue, which is made each year for the festival, and a substantial fair, 
whose attractions bring many thousands of people in from surrounding villages. The festivities are organised and funded by voluntary committees of the commercial district's leading merchants and shopkeepers in Jaipur, the Hindu colleagues and competitors of Jain businesses. The Jain merchants mostly make donations towards the expenses of this, joining in, but don't take an active or visible part in, as members of the organising committee and so forth. And ordinary lay Jains also participate in the festival itself, but also in notably qualified and disengaged ways. Hindu homes all have a small image of Ganesh above the entrance, and Jain homes have these too. It would be unthinkable to slight the deity on this day. He's generally benevolent and helpful, and Jain merchants also invoke him as they open new account books each year. But he's also known to be tricksterish and vengeful when crossed. During the festival, then, a puja is offered to all of these images. But whereas for Hindu families, this is an integral part of a day-long celebration of the deity, for Jains, it's a short, simple act of acknowledgement and reverence, mostly performed between the text recitation in the morning and confession in the afternoon, in the interval where lunch doesn't happen. The Ganeshi festival represents, rather vividly, all the material and sensual aspects of life from which the Jains, even if only for the duration of their own holy day, are setting themselves carefully apart. But they have lives to lead uh, the rest of the year and neighbours to get on with, and a similar um, in a similar spirit to their worship of the Ganeshji uh, statue on their home, on their door, many Jains also make a brief, somewhat exhausted appearance and the festivities in the streets. To the neutral observer, they might appear to be participating on the same terms as their Hindu neighbours, and that is indeed the impression they wish to convey. They'll be dressed and comport themselves in the same way, though obviously they won't eat or drink anything because they're still fasting. But their participation though scrupulously courteous and apparently unmarked, is from their own perspective, on account of its coincidence and sharp contrast with pollution, seen in an entirely different and very qualified light. So insofar as pollution is for lay Jains, a brief experience of something like renouncer's ascetic discipline, and therefore an experience of detachment from their domestic life as householders, Ganesh Chaturthi, the Hindu festival, serves rather vividly as a representation of just what marks them off from their majority Hindu neighbours. For what, what that festival, the festival which for the latter, for the Hindus, is a religious festival, for the Jains is exactly what religion teaches and enables them to transcend. From their perspective, they know that what their Hindu neighbours think of as religion is in fact thoroughly worldly. Yet they also participate in it. The gesture is reminiscent, I think, in some respects, of Goffman's account of civil inattention, that brief engagement with mutual registering and adjustment that enables strangers passing in the street not to walk into each other. Without any contact or acknowledgement, certainly nothing that would invite or require actual interaction. You don't want to end up in conversation with the person you've just wanted to walk past and not, not walk into in the street. If the other were not present in that situation... There would be no need for these barely perceptible adjustments. But the other is present. In urban life, unknown others always will be. And sustaining detachment from them requires this particular kind of very minimal engagement. The difference is that Goffman's civil inattention is typically a mutual accommodation. If both of you aren't paying attention, somebody will get walked into. 
In this case, instead, a small but relatively privileged minority makes an accommodation in the form of a discreetly disengaged participation. Without that fact, the fact of the disengagement of their participation being visible to the other side. My second example of Jain practices where detachment is cultivated is the renouncer's almsgiving, something I've written about before. Elaborate rules govern how this is conducted. The basic idea is that all cooking, involving as it does use of water and fire and chopping things up, is inherently violent, as it causes the deaths of many living things. So renouncers seek to receive food from lay households without incurring any of the responsibility for the violence that goes into its preparation. And indeed without incurring any obligation at all, as receipt of hospitality and a gift of food would ordinarily do as a matter of course. In order to maintain this detachment, renouncers must, as they put it, graze, as cattle do, accepting a little food from each of several households, so little that no one will have to go without as a result, or even notice that it's gone. And all of the food should have been prepared not for them, but for the family itself, without the renouncers in mind. And to ensure that no one will prepare more food to replace that which has been given to the renouncers, for then they would bear responsibility for the violence involved in producing that, they must gather this food after cooking has finished and just before the family starts to eat. In any case, they do not ask for any of this from anyone. They should present themselves silently at the door of lay Jane houses. If no one notices and invites them in, then they are supposed to move on, and if unsuccessful at a few households, they're supposed to go home and um, uh, empty-handed. And so they are also, if they see at any of the households they do go to, any food being prepared that, isn't, uh, that they wouldn't be allowed to eat uh, themselves, uh, because then they would be involved with that. Assuming all that's dealt with, and they can accept some food, family members place it, taken straight from the cooking pots, into the renouncer's own arms bowls. It's both meritorious and an affirmation of the family's orthopraxy with regard to food, that the renouncers will accept their food if they see anything around that amiss, then they're not supposed to. And as hospitality anyway dictates, they always try to urge, the families always try to urge as much as possible on their guests. But the renouncers do not behave as guests. They do not meet anyone's eyes. They express no gratitude, pleasure or appreciation for what they're given. And indeed, never actually express verbally any agreement to receive anything. All they ever say is, no, that's enough. Don't give me any more. They engage in no other conversation or interaction while in the house for this purpose. And on exit, they give a simple two-word blessing, which wishes the householders the fruit of their good deed. After that, they return to where they're staying, and the food collected by various of them from different households is all mashed together in a single mass. Designed to be unappetizing, and designed to make it the case that no one's contribution is identifiable as theirs, as coming from them. A number of points are striking about this. It's hardly an interaction at all. The householders are engaged in performing generous hospitality, as best they can, and from their point of view, of course, their host's reluctance to receive not only confirms the latter's austerity, and therefore the merit in giving to them at all, but also their own generosity, because they've been as generous as they possibly could. But the renouncers do everything they can not to be recipients of anything that resembles normal hospitality at all. 
In taking only what couldn't be missed and in combining it all together, they ensure that there's no thing that anyone has given them that they consume. And they don't even refer to it as food when they do. They use a different word. The images used by renouncers to describe and explain all the, these, the rules governing this process strikingly do not portray it as an interaction either. They say that they are like a cow taking the top of grass without damaging the plant, or like a bee gathering pollen from flowers again without damaging the plant. And that's something which just they are doing to something. And in an important sense, these images are just what has taken place is not really an interaction. The renouncers have got the food they need, but without incurring any obligation and without compromising their detachment from all the sinful, violent processes of production and reproduction that householders are necessarily embroiled in. This, of course, is quite a trick to pull off. Pretty well everywhere, and in South Asia as reliably and affirmatively as anywhere else, food transactions create social connections and obligations. In order for the renouncers to be fed, and yet in this respect for nothing to happen, people have to do quite a lot, quite carefully. And unlike the civil but disengaged accommodation Lay Jane's make to the Ganeshji festival, this exercise in the cultivation of detachment is mutual. The householders, and mutually beneficial in fact, the householders get their blessing and their merit and get to feel good about a generous gift. The renouncers get their food, but no attendant responsibility for the violence involved in producing it. And unlike with the Jain and Hindu festivals just described, for both parties here, the other is not incidental but necessary to the achievement of their own objectives. The Jain Paryushan, that Jain festival I described, doesn't depend for its meaning or efficacy on the existence of the recently adopted Hindu festival that takes place simultaneously. Albeit that the counterpoint it provides to the austerity of the Jain celebrations is aesthetically satisfying from a Jain perspective. Like the unfamiliar other on Goffman's urban street, the religious ethnic other here is a contingent happening, something to be accommodated, and this is best done from everybody's point of view with the minimal interaction possible and without even overt recognition that an accommodation has in fact taken place. It's best achieved in and conducive to the reproduction of a spirit of indifference. The same is not true of the arms gathering, where neither can achieve their objectives without the other, and so neither could even in principle wish the other away, as the walker on Goffman's urban street could quite coherently wish his pavement less crowded. Although he presumably couldn't coherently wish an entirely empty city to live in, but... The parties here, by contrast, here in the, in the arms uh, round, even as they are in important senses not interacting in a sort of meticulously maintain, maintained detachment, stand in a relation to each other that's nevertheless ethically and effectively positive. There are temptations on both sides to break the rules, of course, and it does happen that people do so. But generally, both sides have an interest in maintaining the proper distance and restraint between them. In this respect, this practice is reminiscent of Candea's description of habituation between observers and meerkats. It requires a degree of interpatience, the patience and restraint to accommodate the other's contrasting projects and purposes, so as to maintain what he nicely calls a pact of inaction. Inaction is also at issue in my final example, 
I've said already that fasting is a key Jain ascetic practice and comes in many forms. Several fasts with specific dietary restrictions for specific periods of time are reenactments of those performed by the characters in well-known myths and parables. And people often perform these fasts in the hope that they'll benefit in some way that resembles the events in those narratives. Health will be restored to themselves or a member of their family, some difficulty of some specific kind will be removed, and so on. Now, although this is common, uh, a lot of the fasting that goes on happens in that context with a story attached to it and for, with, a, with the expectation of a specific kind of benefit. Although this is very common, everyone knows that it's problematical and hedged around with qualifications. The problem is that fasting is supposed to be an expression and a means towards the attainment of equanimity and the reigning in of desires. So to perform one in the hope of fulfilling a desire is obviously problematic. It's obviously a contradiction. The routine way this is handled is that one is supposed to banish any thought of the practical outcome that you actually are aiming at from your mind while engaging in the fast. To think, as the Jain idiom puts it, only about cleaning one's soul while the process is going on. A standard analogy is that when grain is planted and watered, grass will also grow around it. And any worldly benefits from fasting should likewise be unintended side effects, even though they are foreseeable. In the case of routine fasting by ordinary laypersons, what goes on most of the time in a Jain community, this is all regarded in a fairly relaxed way. But sometimes the question of the relation between motivation and outcome becomes much trickier. From the very beginning of the Jain tradition, it has been a highly prestigious possibility for renouncers, and more la later in the tradition for lay people, to undertake a fast to death. And um, this practice is carefully distinguished from suicide. Okay? They go to a lot of trouble to say that it's not just suicide. It requires the permission of a senior renouncer. It must not be undertaken in a state of grief, rage, despair, depression, whatever and proceeds by a gradual reduction in what one eats, with increasing lengths of time spent sitting in meditation, ending in a final vow to fast completely and end one's life in that state. Since, as we've seen, embodied existence for the Jains necessarily involves harm to other living things, concerted attempts to practice restraint and progressively to minimise the harm one causes to others points logically towards this as a fitting kind of end to life. Salvation is conceived as the rebirth of the soul without a physical body, and this fast, referred to literally as death, meditation death, is an anticipation of, as well as a means towards achieving, that end. In an obvious sense, however, this is an act of intensely engaged will. It differs from martyrdom in the Abrahamic religious traditions, most conspicuously in not depending on any act of persecution by anyone else. It's entirely the result of one's own deliberation, decision, and action. But how can you dissolve the will by an act of will? How can you successfully realize a desire to eliminate desire? Aren't these like deciding to believe or asserting relativism performative contradictions? The paradox must indeed loom over the outset of such a fast, but the point of the rules that govern it, and in particular the point of its being a slow and extended process, is precisely to, to turn an action into a state of being, 
into a state that's entirely disengaged from everything around it. So that the self that completes the process is detached from the decisions and acts even of the self that began it. Now one fairly obvious device for achieving this is the vows that one takes uh, when undertaking this, which have the effect, as vows do, of placing the mental states associated with fasting as an act, the intention and decision and will and so on, before and therefore outside what the foul itself defines as being the act itself. But only the very duration of the fast, the progressive elimination of items from the diet, the increasing periods of complete immobility, the experience of one's physical being and impingement on the space around one gradually dwindling, of physical strength and energy fading away, and finally, of course, physiological shutdown. Only all this long, drawn-out process can reconcile the fact that this is something someone does with the required detachment, even from the outcome of the act itself. This is why the most prestigious such deaths are those by people who are in perfect health when they embark on the process. It just takes longer. So Jane accounts of these fasts always describe their successful completion in the same terms. He or she greets death as much without eagerness as without reluctance or fear. It's always important to stress that. that There's no, as it were, you don't sort of rose in triumphalism in the final moments. These examples, I suggest, three, I don't know, indicate that on these different occasions when Jane seek to cultivate detachment, they're aiming at distinctly different things. And not just the same thing, to different degrees. They bear out, I think, the intuition that if one looks positively and ethnographically at projects to achieve detachment, rather than regarding them as necessarily ideological, then it becomes clear that detachment's not merely an absence, still less a feint of an absence, but takes definite and variable forms. Let me try to identify what the differences are between these forms of detachment by setting out some possibilities. What kinds of negation might there be of an affirmation of relation, connection, or attachment? Take a simple claim that A is related to B. In a, I think, rather brilliant paper given at last year's AAA, Jonathan Mayer borrows from Jon Elster the Hegelian distinction between internal and external negation. He uses this to describe, respectively, the negative relation to Buddhist doctrine in Inner Mongolian Buddhism and the absence of relation to that same body of knowledge which some of its critics discern in that form of Buddhism. His point there is that the form of non-relation the critics are objecting to is not the non-relation that actually exists in that kind of Buddhism. Now, my purpose here is somewhat different, so I won't rehearse his whole argument, but the, the, the point that, as it were, you can have two different kinds of non-relation is the one that I'm, I, I, I want to pursue. I want to claim that these two kinds of non-relation characterise, respectively, two of the forms of detachment I've described as being cultivated in Jainism. So what's the difference between external and internal negation? External negation applies the negative to the whole of a proposition. <coughs> so here, this is external negation, not A is related to B. Internal negation, by contrast, places the negative inside the proposition. It attaches the negative sign not to the statement as a whole, but to the act or state of being related. So A is not related to B. 
you could rephrase that um, as it's not related to B that A is, as Yoda might have said, as it were. This gives us two kinds of detachment, both of which are more definite than a simple absence of connection, because something definite and different in the two cases is being denied. Detachment by external negation turns on the specification of what is detached from what. It's B, specifically, that A is distinguished and set apart from. My example of pollution and the relation Jains have to Hindus, as expressed in that, is, I think, an illustration of this kind of detachment. Jains discreetly but firmly mark their non-identity with their Hindu neighbours by their detached stance in relation to the Ganeshji festival. They may appear to be part of it all, but they set themselves apart from their own point of view. What it is specifically to be attached is, not, is an unstressed and, if you like, thinly specified matter. It's left as a largely negative relation. What is specified is the identity of the two things that are not attached. Detachment by internal negation, on the other hand, stresses the nature of the disconnection. It makes being not attached into a positively specific act or state. It's not attached that A is with respect to B. Now, in external negation, it can be the case, as in the relation between Jaipur Jains and their Hindu neighbours, that the non-identity and separation between them is a contingent and inessential matter. Neither is any deep sense constituted by their non-attachment to the other. Like the passers-by on Goffman Street, they would be, and be who they are pretty much, in the absence of the other. But it can also become the case where non-identity or detachment by external negation becomes more politically salient, that distinguishing self from that particular other becomes essential to one or both parties' identities. Where this is the case, then of course denigration, hostility or violent conflict can become life possibilities. So it looks as if there might be some reason to suppose that situations of detachment by external negation are those in, in which indifference could be, in Bailey's terms, a minor or qualified virtue. In detachment by internal negation, by contrast, as in the renouncer's arms gathering, indifference is not really an option, because maintaining detachment involves an ongoing negotiation of co-patience. It therefore makes sense that this is the kind of detachment we find between renouncers and their lay devotees, and which, as in Buddhism, has always been figured as being compatible, not with indifference, but with compassion on one side and reverence on the other. My third example, the fast to death, represents yet another possibility. <clears throat> Here the kind of detachment that's aimed at, and only ever asymptotically approached, of course, is not the negation of any particular affirmation or any particular attachment. At this point, detachment becomes, so to speak, intransitive. Approaching complete non-action and non-engagement, even with one's own ultimate fate, the promise is held out in Jain religious thought and practice of detachment, even from oneself. <clears throat> 